0: "'Oh, thank the goddess. I faded back to a familiar place. For the better part of the last year or so, I've been blipping in and out of realities, never knowing where I'll show up next. My frequent appearings and disappearings lately have me wondering. Am I the one responsible, the result of some inability to process feelings of loss, or am I being summoned? Is there someone calling me forward into these other realms?' Now, if you've ever been to a seance, you know of the powerful magics that are out there and the abilities that certain people, people who are gifted, can tap into. Maybe all of us get channeled into other dimensions while we doze in our sleep hammocks, our dreams just glimpses as our brains race to try to make sense of what's happening to us. I once visited a psychic parlor in New Orleans. While awake and very much in my body as one is in New Orleans... I sat down at a round cafe table, draped my travel satchel over the back of the chair, and waited to have my tea leaves read. I was assigned a psychic from a list of names written in two colors of chalk on a board opposite the check-in counter. As I waited there in a thick cloud of incense, other people drifted in and out, absent-mindedly grazing bowls of amethyst and polished agate with their fingers. I started to feel a keen sense of dread that something was amiss. The lighting was too bright for, one, the colors of the wall, the wrong shade of green. I could feel that mixed in among casual practitioners of magic and weekend witches that there was also a false hope being peddled, the dark magic of a con, hidden under layers of cheap patchouli and sandalwood. Also, I had just been cheated of twenty dollars by a man down by the river due to my failing a simple riddle and I wasn't about to blow more of my beignet money on someone staring into an empty teacup. That reminds me of another important thing to keep in mind while visiting New Orleans. Don't eat beignets while wearing black. A mess! I wish I had someone to read the trails of powdered sugar on my slacks. <laughs> well, recently, I had a real encounter from beyond. Maybe not surprising, given the events of the past few months in the Seaver household. And because it's spooky season anyway, I thought I'd share it with you now, as we welcome you through the mystic portal that leads us to the Deep Night. Friends, hello, it's me, Dale Seaver, your host for another sonic sojourn through this. The deep night is 4 a.m., the shadows are sleeping, and we come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. As I sit here in my podcasting chair with its leather molded into the shape of a hand, I can't help but wonder about all the other Dales sitting in there, questionably shaped seating, spread out across the multiverse, and what they're saying right now, unaware how one... Shift in their turtleneck folds could ripple across dimensions, affecting changes not unlike a butterfly's wings or the wake left by an angry orca. Sometimes when I look at all this imagery we see out there, generated by AI, I think, is this just a message from beyond, from out there? Are these other me's me? What do the robots know that we don't? And when I think about seances and robots and new technology giving shape to the strange energies around me, of course... I think about how life evolved on Earth, how everything began in the sea, how those pool-cleaning robots evolved to be on land and moved into our homes as eager OCD-ridden Roombas. These simple but pesky maintenance droids have taken over our homes and added nest thermostats and ring doorbells that provide them eyes out into the greater world, Alexa and Spotify tracking our purchases and love of Pakistani disco, Soon the singularity will be upon us, and our roles in the cosmos will shift. But until then, how do these technologies bring us closer to that which we cannot understand? Are there algorithms out there right now being exploited by the spirit realm? Can we receive messages from loved ones who have passed on through technology we use every day? Can the world wide web be coaxed into making vibrations in the real world that can be felt by those who are ready to listen? New technologies have often come to the fore at a time of uncertainty and demands for connection. Let's turn back the page a hundred plus years. Spiritualists argued that the dead encircled the living just as scientists were proving that invisible activity did indeed surround us. Germ theory, radiation, the telegraph, the telephone, and the phonograph were among the 19th century advances that strengthened faith in photography's ability to capture the unseen. The death-defying displays in both spiritualism and photography were soon brought together in attempts to create scientific proof of the spiritual dimension. Now, that is from our friend and photographer and spiritualism scholar Shannon Taggart from her book, Seance. I had asked her recently if she thought the dead could communicate through the internet, and she said, have you read my book? And then I had to say, no, I I hadn't, because while I supported the Kickstarter, I opted for no reward. That's the kind of person I am. And anyway, she sent it to me, and then I read it. And so thank you, Shannon. See, it confirmed my suspicions, because you see, for the past year and a half, my dead father has been speaking to me through eBay. Now, I've heard of people experiencing something similar, a glitch here or an unkind hack causing one to receive direct communique from a social media profile of the dead. My father was stubbornly offline, so the fact that he would even figure out how to talk to me through any kind of computer, let alone a massive online marketplace, is extraordinary in to itself, and at first I couldn't really believe it was happening. It wasn't until I received confirmation in the form of a three-inch-tall molded plastic figure that I knew it was for real. But to understand how I got to that point first, we need to talk about Kaltor. The Kaltor I own is plastic. He's a double-headed monster resembling a dragon. Its two heads vary only slightly, with one face expressing what looks like resignation and the other slight irritation. It shares one body with two outward-stretched arms and two sturdy legs with little plastic bumps indicating scales. It differs from other dragons of myth and lore, and that it has no long tail or wings, and its proportions are such that he would have no problem shopping for clothes at the Gap, if he was the kind of fellow who wore clothes at all. Given his legs, I assume Kaltor was a walking dragon, even though he lives in the sea, or maybe legs are common features of sea dragons we've only explored like 20% of the Earth's oceans, and I'm sure it, like my wife Galinda, holds many mysteries. Kaltor is an obscure character. There's almost no chance you know who he is or where he came from. He does not exist in story or fable. His entire existence can be traced to the yellowing pages of an Aquaman comic book from 1965. In fact, Kaltor is such a strange and forgettable sort of fellow that anyone would make a toy out of him, let alone be a toy someone would seek out almost 60 years later is beyond unlikely, bordering on the unbelievable. But let's settle for baffling. And understanding how he came to be is exactly the sort of question my father would have enjoyed figuring out. In fact, I saw the mystery of Kaltor to be one reason why he chose that form to reveal his presence to me. Kaltor first appeared in The Sea King's Double Doom, a single-issue arc running in Aquaman No. 20, published in April 1965. Comic book Kaltor is purple and compared to Aquaman and his teen ward Aqualad, a giant. The Kaltor I own can be held in your hand, is electric green, and lives behind glass on a display shelf next to like-sized plastic renderings of a suite of fellow comic book villains including Mouse Man, Key Man, Brainstorm, and the Joker, plus one incredibly rare Thunderbolt with his wafer-thin Thunderbolts intact. The full set of these figures, which originally included Wonder Woman, Flash, Superman, Aquaman, Batman and Robin, a Batmobile, and Bat-Jet, was produced by the Ideal Toy Corporation in 1966 as a way to capitalize on the success of the television series Batman, which premiered the same year. It was part of a frenzied wave of toys, pins, cards, clothing, costumes, puppets, lamps, puzzles, and games, and more that swept across the country and filled the coffers of national periodical publication which held the license for Batman-related merchandise. Even the avid reader of comics could be forgiven for not remembering or even knowing anything about Kaltor. And part of that has to do with his role in advancing the Aquaman mythology, which is arguably zero, none. Despite being marketed as a villain in this figure set, Kaltor began as an Atlantean, a resident of the underwater kingdom of Atlantis, where he was a trusted friend and mentor to the king of Atlantis, our golden-haired Arthur Curry, a.k.a. Aquaman, This friend was doing heroic things, helping rescue fellow Atlanteans when a mine collapsed and he was doused with magical sea gas. This led as anyone who's been doused with sea gas from a collapsing underwater mine can tell you to him being transformed into the raging and thrashing two-headed beast who also went by the name of Kaltor, who after threatening both Aqualad and Aquaman's wife Mira, who, okay, side note, uh, Mira only showed up to uh, this situation because she was jealous of Kaltur's daughter, Starine, uh, who was not at all interested in the way too old for her Aquaman and instead later became a girlfriend for Aqualad, uh, Mira's jealousy, nonetheless uh, the motivating factor for putting her in danger. If you're picturing an underwater karaoke bar with Mira belting "Styrene, Styrene" after the tune of Jolene, then friend, we're on the same page here. But anyway, okay, Aquaman stabs Kaltor to save his jealous wife and his teenage intern, but, oh gosh, the blade breaks. So he makes a new blade out of his shell, and that works. And then he kills the dragon, but I guess he just kills the magic part, so Kaltor is returned to his human form, also named Kaltor, and that's it. That's all anyone would ever hear about Kaltor for the rest of comic book history. Yet the folks at the Ideal Toy Corp uh, were probably hoping for more, unaware that they alone would be the ones to ensure Kaltor's legacy would endure uh, through the ages such that it did. Now, the nuance of Kaltor's unfortunate transformation and his relationship to Aquaman, which lent a certain drama to his brief, if inconsequential story, is something that the designers of the Justice League of America place that seemingly spent very little time thinking about. The Ideal Toy Company in 1965 was one of the biggest names in toys, dolls, and games in the United States. Founded in Brooklyn in 1903, it invented the teddy bear. It had a manufacturing plant in Queens and was responsible for such gigantic toy hits as Betsy Wetsy, Saucy Walker, Patty Playpal, Mousetrap, and Chrissy the doll with the adjustable hair. So, one can imagine a New York office in that heady Mad Men era, filled with a small group of determined young men in starch shirts and ties. They receive an order to make a playset of toy soldiers, but instead of army men or cowboys, they're to base their figures on popular comic book characters. So, They ask one of their secretaries to send a kid from the mailroom out to grab a bunch of comics off the rack, and he comes back with Aquaman number 20, Justice League numbers 32, 34, 37, and 41, plus Wonder Woman number 141. Or maybe National periodicals sent over a bunch via messenger on their first meeting. Or maybe one of the guys adjusted his thick black glasses and said, hey, my kid reads Wonder Woman. Let me grab one and bring it in. My sense is that they spread out these comics on a big conference table, matched up villains to heroes in pairs, then sent them to the designer and mold maker to come up with workable designs. And that's how we got this very particular grouping of heroes with random villains and not-so-villains. That seems a plausible path for how Kaltor, of all things, would be manufactured and join a roster of rogues meant to be a foil to the world's greatest heroes. The only rationale for Kaltor and the Justice League to be part of a Batman-themed playset in 1966, when those characters had zero participation in the hit TV series that aired the same year, would have been because, like other popular sets of military figures, they needed to fill out a regiment of soldiers. "'Add to the ranks.' "'The sculpted figures physically resembled the smaller green army men. "'All were in fixed positions of attack "'and have wafer life plastic bases on which they stand. "'At that point in time, for toy-makers and quite a few others, "'the world you were reflecting was very much one of good versus evil. "'Us versus them. Make it easy, clean. "'There was little room for nuance or complexity. "'They were toys, all meant for children.' To make things exciting, you'd want to uh, pit a person with the power to talk to fish opposite another uh, person-ish thing who swims or is sea-life adjacent. On playroom floors across the country, on carpeted battlefields with shoebox hills, you'd want one guy on a horse to be able to face off with another guy on a horse or a fellow with a cannon to trade fire with another fellow with a cannon. The point was, there should be obvious pairs of sparring partners. But maybe I'm not being generous enough with these fellows in the conference room, an ideal toy company. Maybe they felt like injecting a little nuance and complexity would lead to greater depth in the simulated battles. So great that Kaltor was just a guy transformed into a wild beast, or that Thunderbolt was really a good guy possessed by some kind of entity, or that Mouse Man is in no way a genuine threat for Wonder Woman. Maybe that's a more interesting conversation to have on the floors and backyards and beds of America. Certainly it lends itself to more story possibilities. Maybe they knew that and wanted to encourage open-ended play. Or maybe I'm the one being ideal. It likely did not occur to them. It clearly mattered little what color any particular figure was. The heroes in the ideal place that were all hand-painted, albeit in a kind of hurried way, you needed those figures to be recognizable, though. Even if the bat symbol could sometimes be a little bird-like or Flash's lightning bolt was more of a yellow smear. The villains, on the other hand, were just solid. Molded plastic in one of three color choices. Bright green, electric purple, or vibrant orange. The plastic is thin enough in some places, like Kaltor's ear fins or thunderbolts. Thunderbolts, that the figures can seem to glow from within. The sculpting on each of them is highly detailed and expressively rendered. You get a sense that Brainstorm is kind of a jerk, on account of all the star juice in his helmet, and Mouseman is straight-up delusional. All in all, they make a fine set. And when they were first manufactured, the villains were in a random assortment of their colors. An orange brainstorm would be positioned on a tiny cardboard plinth next to a purple joker and a green mouse man. I imagine no one ended up with all the same color, and it was probably just as rare to end up with the characters that even came close to the colors that they were in the comic books. Okay, now this might only matter to me, someone obsessed with having the correct version of things. But in the Wonder Woman comic... And I know this because I found it in all the other issues I mentioned that might have appeared in the ideal conference room. Mouseman is yellow, so you'd have to hope for, I guess, a green one of those. But the others uh, one could make a case for because even Brainstorm had a bit of purple in his suit, so purple Brainstorm worked. And to me, for things to line up perfectly, I'd want a purple Thunderbolt, Caltor, Joker, and Brainstorm, green Mouse Man, and I guess an orange key. He's actually called Key Man on the figure, but that is uh, another uh, thing that is not quite right because he's known as the key for most of comic. But anyway, in a pinch, I could let Joker be green. That's kind of a 50-50, and one would certainly be nice to have more than just purple dominating the group because the purple ones don't show up very well in the display case. For my entire life, much like you, I went without knowing or caring about any of this. I did know that these figures existed in the way that I know four-leaf clovers exist. They're around, people like them, but I'll be okay with that one. I bet I could find one if I went looking for it. But I lack the inclination to sit in one place long enough to find them, or to scour the acres of flea market tables required to maybe turn one up. Now, being of the persuasion that came of age to reading comic books and collecting things, I might be more tuned in to the tours and brainstorms and mouse men out there. But still, that particular place that was too expensive and I wasn't about to get into collecting things again at this point in my life. At least, that's what I thought until my dad died and I was faced with what to do with a significant amount of his stuff and my stuff. Stuff which along with... Closets full of turtlenecks, ceramic owls, and pewter wizards included a sizable collection of Batman items which I had gathered from the 1980s until whenever I moved away and had to pay for other things like pasta sauce and yoga mats and rent. My father's death occurred sometime in the early hours of November 20th, 2021. He was sleeping downstairs. His wife was upstairs. He got up to use the bathroom. Then something happened, and that's where he was found by the EMTs. And when he died, I didn't feel the same way that I did after my mother died some twenty-five years prior. I could feel her presence everywhere I went. For years, as I moved from city to city across the country, I maintained our relationship. A son and his ghost mother. She offered silent confirmation that what I felt as my instincts were right. I could feel her behind every coincidence and chance encounter, as if placing the stones wherever I needed to walk. Dad's death was different. We had time together as adults. He and I had grown to understand each other and see each other for the people we had become, both shaped in our own way by loss. I felt as close to him as I did anyone, and so was a surprise that after delivering his eulogy and walking away from the gravesite at the cemetery that at first I just didn't have what I had become used to, that ghostly feeling, nothing remotely like an otherworldly link, no vibrations, no sense of eerie calm, no example that he was now going to function in my life the way my mother had, And why would he? Everything was different. They were different people, and I was at a different place in my life. My needs now were not what they were twenty-five years ago. Although there was one constant over that span of time. Batman. My childhood bedroom, left mostly intact at their house, was full of Batman things. This collection initiated by me and then nurtured and added to over the years by my father, who even later in life, despite difficulty— walking, would still scour the damp fields and folding tables at auto-show flea markets or glass cabinets in antique malls for vintage toys emblazoned with the image of the Cape crusader. They'd turn up, wrapped in, under the tree at Christmas, or sent to me through the mail to any one of the places I'd lived since leaving home. Providence, San Francisco, Oakland, Minneapolis, Los Angeles, Brooklyn, most everything I had kept at home in their cases, not wanting to risk their safety or value in any of these other temporary places I'd lived. But for some reason, when I moved into a new office at work, I brought a red-wheeled, glossy Batmobile with me and put it on my desk near the computer. Because of its pristine condition, I came to think that Dad probably had purchased a reissue, a Batmobile made more recently to mimic the look and feel of the original ones made in 1972 by Corky. I felt a little bad that Dad spent more than he probably should have on something that was essentially just a reprint. That changed when I finally looked the model up which I did a month or so after his passing. Turns out, as he always had, Dad knew what he was talking about. It was an authentic Batmobile. And it was probably something that I should keep at home in a safe place, not just out on my desk at the yoga studio, as it had been for the entire past two years due to the pandemic and working remotely. So the first chance I had, I wrapped the car up in some tissue, slid it into a business card box, and brought it home with me. At that point, something shifted within me. I started thinking about the collection again. I had already said that I didn't want to be a 50-year-old man with a toy collection in his parents' house. We all have our own journeys, but that is not the one I wanted. So I made a promise to myself that I would deal with it, clear it out, sell it. I started boxing things up and bringing them back to New York to see what they were worth, and in the process of what a museum would refer to as deaccessioning, selling off valuable but less desirable objects and putting that money towards new things. In researching what I had and what I could get for that particular Batmobile, I came across a website, as one does, that listed all the variations of Batmobiles that were ever made between 1966 and the present. The Internet is glorious. Now, I never pined for Batmobiles before, but something about them started to speak to me. The sleekness, the proportions, the dome glass over the seats, the fins rising ever upward, the tiny bat symbol stickers on the doors, or not, sometimes it would be on the hood. There were plastic ones and metal ones, and ones that were only made in Italy, so I started buying them almost entirely through eBay. I didn't have lots of money to spend, but I was selling some of the things I had, and Dad loved cars, so this felt like a way to honor him. I didn't realize he was actually the one suggesting things to buy. And of course, it would start with cars. There's a kind of madness that settles in for collectors. It centers on the idea that if there is more than one of anything but a limited amount of that thing, then it should be possible to obtain a complete set of a thing. That completion is satisfying. That completion is healing. That completion becomes everything. And in a world where eBay exists, It's very easy to find everything in a way that was not so easy when one had to rely on weekend antique dealers or trips to flea markets where men in suspenders pulled stuffed cardboard boxes from the back end of a minivan a few Sundays a year. See, I was raised in the antique markets of southeastern Pennsylvania, places like Renegers, Black Angus, Quonset Hut, the Log Cabin, all places I'd long for and get up early for. My dad made the trip out the turnpike so many times he had memorized the fares, and my mother would hand him the ticket with exact change to give to the toll booth operator at the exit as we slowly rolled through. I can still conjure the smells of each place like a flea market sommelier; I can recall their distinctive aromas-cigar smoke, perfume, wood cleaner, leather. Some stalls were spare, some overly packed. Some had people who remembered you from your previous visit. Others just looked over their glasses from time to time as you flipped through old photos. Our furniture, our lighting, our clocks, our decor, our Christmas ornaments, all came from these places. My mother's engagement ring was a purchase one Sunday. It was an arena in which my dad was not socially uncomfortable, at ease discovering the use for some old tool or gadget, delighting in discovering a hidden drawer in a dresser or an exceptional bit of joinery going deep to explain the origin of some obscure mechanism or product only designed to do one thing until that thing too faded into disuse or was replaced by a more efficient gadget. It did not take long for me to find something to search for of my own. He wore a cape and a cowl and was best friends with Superman and took in an orphan circus performer named Dick. Batman was my guy and I was good at finding him. By the time I was ten I knew which vendors to skip past. Ornate glassware? Snooze. Military uniforms? Should there even be a market for Nazi memorabilia? Or the one that sat empty except for a lone rocking chair and a curly-haired doll with one eye rolled open? That one was haunted. I could navigate quickly and on my own to the ones that had what I was looking for. I tried to stifle my excitement at finding something I had never seen. The mobile Bat Lab in its original packaging. A ceramic Joker music box. A Batman fork and spoon set. It was crushing when whatever I found was a little bit more than what I had with me. I used to stash allowance and lawn mowing money into an envelope and keep next to the bed for comic books and bat buying purposes. The mobile lab was too much. Other things, lots of other things, were fine. And so I bought them, a lot of them. What I didn't get, sometimes my dad would go back, and then it would turn up for birthdays and holidays. He had that collector's thing. If one exists, maybe two exist, and if more than that are out there, then it's worth it to find them. He was also a person who had to see things through. He did not like for there to be projects or even social interactions left dangling. If you did something nice for him, he would repay it right away. A gift got to thank you. If you dropped off some wood for him to make something, it would come back to you as a bowl or an ornament or a cutting board you once said you thought would be nice to have. This is just to give you a sense of who he was in life and the kind of wiring I was brought up with, along with a heavy dose of magic loving and belief in the beyond from my mother, and that helped me see and recognize what was starting to happen with my own eBay purchases. Once I started looking up Batmobile variations, re-engaging with my childhood talents and impulses for collecting, it was hard to stop. I was finding good deals, which is also something Dad instilled in me. Know a good value, but also, if you're really after something and it's in great condition, just pay for it. In other words, don't let a good thing slip by, especially, especially if it completes a set. Completion is the goal. For the many ways in which eBay has perfected the online auction experience, searching that site for a particular thing or multiple particular things at one time is not so great. It's wonky, confusing, and not at all streamlined, which is where another site, PickClick, steps in. On PickClick, you can have multiple eBay searches all on the screen, all at once. The interface is something slightly above Uh, early 2000s-era Craigslist, but it just means more real estate for all the newest listings to be available at a glance. On one screen, you see the price, how many bids, option to buy it, a picture. If you're not finding it under the U.S. eBay listings, perhaps check the U.K. listings or the Canadian markets. You have to factor in a little extra shipping, but sometimes every time, it's worth it. As the odd months went by after my dad's death, I became very focused on listing bat items for sale and then buying a few things here and there, finding things I had never seen before or since, and it was all because of him. I would read a Batman blog somewhere, they exist, and learn about the rarest, most valuable bat toys, and within a few days or weeks, after simply entering my consciousness for the first time, something springing forward from Zeus's head They would pop up on eBay. Without fail, I got a big catalog of Batman collectibles that had been on my shelf for years and started combing through it. A Batman secret transistor radio made in Japan. How had I missed knowing about that? I wonder if I could find it. I started sensing something and tried to articulate the feeling I was having. It was one of realizing that so many of the lessons and ways of moving through life that my dad demonstrated in his being... "'were now active in me, "'so that while I was looking for something outside of myself "'to be a signal of his presence, "'it was more along the lines of two beams of light "'that had been uh, aligned, "'making each stronger and more brilliant, Two heads of a dragon sharing a body. "'I could relax in the confidence that he was not distant, "'but rather so close it was hard at first to see, "'and now I was seeing it operating.' from that place of togetherness. So from time to time, I would say, you know what would be cool to see? A Batman secret transistor radio from 1966. And that night, I searched for it, and there it was. And no one was bidding on it, or at least it was starting very low. And so I put in a very high bid, risking paying too much, but pretty sure I could outdo anyone else's bid, my heart racing as the timer counted down pushing bid at the nine-second mark. My heart races every time I do one of these, not knowing whether I'll end up with something or lose to a more competitive collector. I imagine us both hunched over our laptops, waiting for the right moment to bid so that it leaves no time for the other to sneak in and grab it. With the radio, the late-night bidding all happened while I had been staying at my parents' house in a dark room lit only by the screen of my phone and the eBay app in the bed my father spent his last night alive in, and I got it. I won. The secret transistor radio in its original packaging. The feeling was one that was eerie and wonderful. I thanked Dad out loud. We had opened up a dialogue through eBay via pick through Batman stuff, a thing we shared in life, and now here it was again, active and real. I'd ask Dad to see if he could find something, and it would turn up. I made lists and kept them in my office drawer, and I'd say to him, Dad, that Italian Batmobile would be really nice to have, and there it would be, exactly the model in perfect condition. We made such a great team, so great, that eventually I had to buy an entire display cabinet for my home office. I cleared out old things on a daily basis and bought almost as many new things to replace them. I might as well have been at the flea market with him again some early Sunday morning, groggy but excited by our finds, expressing disbelief at the price we got, puzzled at how we'd fit it into the display case. We were building the collection again, together. A working Gilbert Batman watch with its face in the shape of a bat symbol, its metallic teal-painted wing line still gleaming and unscratched. Got it. A Topps Batman rookie card number one. Got it. A rare friction-powered Batmobile from Britain with a label still on the box. Got it. There was so much, and it happened fast. The ideal Batman playset figures would turn up pretty frequently. Now, I'd swore I'd never be into them. They were too expensive for what they were, and I'd never get the full set anyway. But after a while, I'd seen them come up a few times. I'd bought enough of the other stuff and started to think of my collection as being incomplete without them. I had secured most every other pair of dynamic duo figures that I could find, superpowers with the capes, Mego Bend and Play, Korean-made pencil toppers, even the excruciatingly small British market Rolykins in their original boxes. The latter required its own tiny plastic case to put inside the regular display case, which is how you know you've gone too far with any collection. So, when I finally found... A beautifully painted, ideal playset Robin figure with Dad's help. I bought it. Then I had to find Batman with a batarang and cape with a decent enough paint job to make it worth it, and that one took a little doing. I found a capeless one with a good bat symbol on it, and telling Dad it would be great to find a cape for under 30 bucks, one popped up for exactly that amount, even though it took two separate last-minute bids happening in tandem. I got them both. So I had a wonderful Batman and Robin from the 1966 Ideal Play set. I figured I might as well get the unpainted versions, too, when they popped up. And as long as we've got the main heroes, minus the rest of the Justice League, might as well get the villains. So slowly I started winning them, too, and adding them to the top shelf. Purple Brainstorm, Green Mouse Man, Orange Key, Green Joker. I told Dad that a green Kaltor would be next. There were a few purple ones out there, but the prices on the green ones tended to be lower, and I had a limit of how much I wanted to pay for these things that were, for all intents and purposes, a side narrative to the main thrust of the collection's arc. A day later, a $30 Kaltor in bright neon green showed up, flawless except for some dirt on the front, which I knew after four months of nonstop eBaying that I would likely be able to clean off with a little Q-tip and soap. I bought it. The dirt came right off, and it looks perfect. And that purchase sealed the deal for me. It wasn't just some one-off or fluke, not just something happening in my mind, but a repeated pattern of back and forth with my father through eBay. I wanted to be extra sure, though. I wanted confirmation from him that what I thought was happening was happening. So, on the evening of my birthday, I looked up at the sky and I said, you know what would be really great. What would prove to me that what I think is going on is going on, is if you show me a Thunderbolt figure on my birthday from the Justice League playset made by the Ideal Toy Company in 1966, and if I see that, I will know for sure, without a doubt, that you're the one responsible for this and that you're okay. You can imagine how I felt when at 2 a.m., unable to sleep the night of my birthday, I grabbed my phone and, without even putting on my glasses, held the screen close to my face and slid open the browser to the eBay listings to reveal the exact figure I had asked for. I cried a little right then. Thunderbolt, just like I asked for. Kaltor was weird, Thunderbolt was rare, and not at all guaranteed to show up with any kind of consistency or frequency that even a mouse man or key showed up. It was extremely unlikely that a Thunderbolt would be there on my birthday within hours of me asking the universe and the spirit of my father to provide it. For a few reasons, I didn't get that particular Thunderbolt figure. I was traveling, it was overpriced and broken, but when I put in the same request for a purple one, he delivered again. And when I lost that one because of a bad Wi-Fi connection, he delivered a third time, and that's the one I got. I may have paid too much for that one, but that's the risk of any online late-night bidding where you feel destiny is at work. Exactly a year after his death, I had completed the ideal playset, at least my version of it, a perfect set of villains in comic-book-appropriate colors, plus Batman and Robin, the Batmobile and the Batjet. I'm not sure I need anything else. I'm quite certain I should not buy anything else. Galinda has encouraged me to consider other things, and my cardiologist says I need to get out more. I will always treasure the gift of this sustained connection to my father and his spirit this past year. And while that original tour was green, I now also have a purple one. Thanks, Dad. But I'm going to keep the green one, because that way we can both have one. Finding bat things on eBay with the spirit of my father helped me in so many ways. It eased my grief, lessened the pain of loss, gave me a project that kept him active in my daily life, a kind of ritual. The collection itself, that I now tend to, wiping away dust, periodically adjusting to make room for that one more thing, is akin to an altar, an altar to the relationship that my father and I had during his life and the one we have now. Collections are weird. Collectors can certainly be strange, but the reasoning behind them can also be weird and strange. For most, I imagine, certainly for me, there's something to the chase of completion, of knowing you may never get them all but still making that attempt. At the very least, you may learn an awful lot about a subject you didn't have any idea about before. Collecting, rituals, summoning the energy of loved ones. Wherever the raps are coming from underneath the table or whoever guides you on that Ouija board or whatever force reaches through the ones and zeros and shows up for you in the moment you need it, it can all be so healing. So this season, don't be afraid to hear what's calling to you and allow for it to be something more than what it might first appear to be, like a dragon of the sea or a red-wheeled Batmobile you thought was worthless. Till next time, friends, I'm Dale Seaver. Each week we're telling stories, warping in new realities, and reporting back from a life unusual. Thank you for listening, and I remind you that although this night is ending, in spite of all that is going on, a bright new day is just ahead. Night with Dale is independently produced, performed, and written by James Bewley. podcast theme by Via Mardot, season artwork by Victor Bizar-Gomez, photography this season by Emma Mead, new website designed by Maria Belen of Bella Mona Designs. All of these artists are wonderful and worth looking up and following on social media or hiring for your next great thing. For everything Dale and Deep Night, true denizens of the deep should visit deepnightshow.com or tune into the show. On Spotify, wherever fine podcasts can be found. Remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and follow Dale on Instagram at Dale Siever. Thanks for paying a visit to the Deep Night. Let's go. For the, Batman. But the Batman will get you if, if you don't, don't watch out. <laughs>